Prashant Malhotra, the sole founder, uh, CEO of Millroad OPC Private Limited, a for-profit social startup enabling social change and impact within the social impact system. Now, just a very brief about what my startup is about. My startup, it's a thought leader platform, the Middle Road, and it relies a lot on online learning. A lot of educational videos in finance and economics, there's something very specific in sustainable finance, e-publications, we have podcasts. So for podcasts, I call up leading experts and thought leaders from around the world, uh, respective fields who talk about their not only work experience, they talk about policies, they talk about what could be better within the global ecosystem. Dr. Chandrakant Leheria is one of the foremost healthcare experts and thought leaders in Asia. Now, our conversation today is going to be dwelling into various aspects of the pandemic. Now, pandemic has been a huge disruptor. If you're trying to understand, you know, in depth, there'll be a lot of global questions. There'll be a lot of also questions on particular specific topics. To understand more about pandemic, to understand more about viruses. So this is a very educational, I will say this is a educationally focused view of which you could refer to. Dr. Chandrakant is a leading epidemiologist, policy and health systems expert based in India. He's also author of one of the fabulous book. I think if you want to read, I would highly recommend that you read Till We Win. It's an extremely insightful, informative and fluid book on COVID-19 and India's fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. But the, what's exceptional about this book that's very global. It, it opens in a very fluid manner. You know, you, you have a lot of instances to learn about, you know, the backdrop of how landscape has changed in healthcare, global healthcare system, I would say in the last century or so. Chandrakant Leheria is also the youngest fellow to be elected to the Indian Public Health Association that works with leading healthcare experts to design healthcare policies and programs at state and national level. Now, he's very, very interested and passionate about universal and primary healthcare in India. And just to one, add one last bit, Dr. Gagandeep Khan and Dr. Randeep Guleria, they are the other co-authors of the book, Till We Win. Dr. Chandrakar, delighted to have you here for a thought-provoking conversation. Hi, it's my pleasure to be here. What I want to share one very good aspect. In your book, like you come to know about so many things. For example, Edward Jenner developed the first vaccine using cowpox virus against smallpox. So, you know, small, small things which you come to know who invented hand, hand washing and what sort of how much it enabled enslaving the lives of people. These are some of the things which I really loved about the book. And I want to congratulate you on being a co-author for such a fantastic book. Let's begin. I mean, you shared a very important in this book, this uh, stunning reality, you know, comparison, which I just wanted to share with the my audience out here. Now, when we talk about viruses, if you take the number of, uh, taking on our planet, it's about 10 to the power 31. Now you compare it with uh, the humans, which is about 8 billion at best is 18 to 10 to the power 9. So you could see the difference between the two. You know, when we talk about bacteria and fungi, now virus, of course, is a much smaller in size than uh, bacteria and fungi. But could you elaborate more about what could be the differentiating factors between viruses and when you're talking about bacteria and fungi? So uh, what this is really fascinating that uh, viruses are far too many than human beings. And viruses are actually far higher in the, in the number on this planet than bacteria also. So the 10 to the power 31 essentially means for every single human being, there are 10 to the power 21 or 22 viruses. So that's a, uh, that's a number which we know. But what we also need to remember that uh, though we know that viruses do not leave fossils because they are not uh, designed that way, but uh, there are studies and there are experts who have looked at it and they said that viruses have been on this planet for uh, around 3 billion years ago and he, uh, when we again compare with human beings so who came around 1000 uh, years ago so billion years ago and 300,000 years ago is viruses have been here they have witnessed uh, as they say all the springs and all the seasons and uh, in the process they have learned how to survive a difficult and challenging environment we know that other species have extinct, but viruses have improved and they are here. One of the key things we need to remember is that uh, over the period of evolution, viruses have learned how to shed the genes, which essentially means they were more complex earlier and now they are little less complex. And that makes them survival in the setting really uh, effective and better. Now, one of the things which we need to remember that we keep hearing viruses, bacteria and fungi, uh, one of the key difference between uh, 
viruses and the bacteria and fungi that uh, while bacteria are independent cells or even fungi are independent cells in the sense that uh, they can multiply their own they have their own life but viruses do not have that kind of mechanism viruses are made of uh, genetic material covered in a protein so if they are lying on the surface they are not they are able to mul uh, multiply replicate so viruses need a cell that cell could be of plant cell human cells or even bacteria anywhere so viruses that's a key difference and that's may makes them that they can be on the surface they can last for longer and then for billions of years or even hundreds of thousands of years later if the same protein and nuclei uh, nucleic acid is uh, found a cell they will start multiplying so that's a key difference and that makes them survivable but also we need to remember that uh, they play viruses bacteria fungi all the microbes play a very important role in this evolution of human uh, civilization or evolution of the planet because uh, they play role in decaying of the dead things they uh, helps in different process but unfortunately sometimes they can cause the kind of disease which we are facing now but they have been part of the ecosystem which we are living it and uh, human as a humans we need to learn to live in the real harmony with the environment and that's what would make this place better look at most of the viruses are not harmful to the human species would i be correct well the, the, we can say that viruses are, do not play the, that much of important role while bacteria and fungi are actually some of them are very useful for example some of the bacteria produce uh, vitamin vitamin b12 which cannot be produced by the human beings and so it's really essential for survival we know there are good bacteria that which are on our skin surface our skin has many more bacteria the other aspects and uh, they are not always harmful as far as viruses are concerned they do not have a very important role in human but one of the fortunate part is that uh, most of the viruses are hidden far away from human civilization they are in the forest like people find it difficult to believe that there are viruses 10 to the power i think 11 or so in 1 liter of sea water so they can be in, in anywhere so they are viruses in sea water they are viruses on forest and most of them are far away from human beings majority of them which are around the human beings are harmless or they do not cause severe disease only limited number of viruses cause severe disease so that's the thing but we need to learn to live with them but one of the challenge which has emerged that with the human civilization human activity uh, for example our interaction with the forest like the deforestation is resulting in the viruses which were till now hidden in the forest are coming in contacts of human being and that's how how some of the corona virus have emerged and that's becoming a challenge that till now the hidden viruses are getting exposed to human beings they are causing disease like the you can remember we know that uh, this is sars cov 2 is being caused by corona virus uh, but there have been corona viruses which were identified as early as 1920 uh, in the animals and then around 1960 in human beings and before sars into uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome in 2002 and 2004 all previous corona viruses known corona viruses were causing only mild illness like common cold so they were literally harmful but very smaller way like common cold illness this is only recent years that we had a sars cov 1 which we call now sars cov 2 and then middle east respiratory syncytial virus which emerged in 2012 which is also corona virus and this is the third corona virus which is causing severe disease so they are in various huge it is very likely that some of the corona virus say other viruses which do not harm or do not cause severe disease we do not even pay attention to them so this one is getting our attention I wanted to ask now corona virus is a large group of rna viruses when i'm talking about rna it's ribonucleic acid that's that's how you pronounce rna viruses and they've got about 26000 to 32000 bases and that rna which is carrying a sequence for roughly about uh, 30 proteins you talked about okay you know they were complex and they are getting less complex here but then still they are complex and they are different from other form of viruses to do elaborate on this aspect yes so majority of viruses have a very small gene genome genomic sequence which means a few hundred genes to a few thousand genes and then most of the viruses and genetic material in majority of the species like no matter viruses bacteria other either rna or dna rna is a ribonucleic acid dna the deoxyribonucleic acid so there there is a different forms but one of the key differences rna is usually single stranded uh, coil like structure and dna is double helix or double 
stranded. Like human beings have a DNA, we know. So most of the advanced species, so to say, have a DNA as a nucleic material because it has some of the characteristic of proofreading and it's more complex. Viruses are relatively simple. They have a limited number of genes and then uh, uh, they can, they use other platforms like other cells to replicate. So uh, by that standard, this virus, SARS-CoV-2, is really bigger. 30,000 base pairs is really high number and some of the proteins which synthesize. Otherwise, viruses are really relatively simple, like they can have 100 genes or 200 genes or they are also smaller in size. But we, what we need to remember that much of the machinery which virus use is not a part of their genomic sequencing because they have to find a cell outside their genomic sequencing and which they use for a, a replication. And remember, we sometimes make a mistake that viruses are looking for only human beings. No, viruses are looking for any cell, which could be a cell of bacteria, which could be cell of tomato, a cell of elephant, a plant, or human beings. They infect everywhere. All they need is a cell and then they will multiply. And that's so difficult, right? They, they need a host and sort of come into your system and replicate. And when you talked about, so there are two things I just wanted to clear. Now, for a layman, let's say, you talk about their size is very small. Could you sort of elaborate on it? Uh, minus nine. So the key thing is that, uh, like, let me ref, uh, elaborate on this. In 1918-1920, we know that influenza pandemic happened. Until that point of time, even the influenza virus was not seen. So in the viruses were first seen in 1933. They were identified in 1933 and on seen around 1940s with the advent of electron microscope. So they definitely cannot be seen with the naked eye. And the biggest virus, I believe, is 10 to the power minus 6, so that's small. But then usually a 10 to the power minus 9. So you require a lot many viruses together. And even then, you will not see the, with the naked eye. So none of the virus, I think, can be seen with the naked eye. Most of the viruses require electron microscope. And some viruses, which are large enough, can be seen with a little advanced microscope. So they are really small. That's what it, you will not see by naked eye. Size now, you know, it's 10 to the power minus 9. And that's really, frankly, this actually very small. You're talking now, we're talking about viruses and we're talking about those vaccines. Now you have Pfizer and Moderna have used cutting-edge technology to, you know, in making vaccines. But typically, we know there are three sort of uh, systems a body has to for any defense against any infectious disease. You have antibodies, you have killer T-cells, and you have helper T-cells. And as, as, of course, you, you would elaborate on, on how this mechanism works. From, from what I know is, and from for, as a layman, like the vaccine of uh, Pfizer and Moderna, they basically target spike proteins it was using the mrna technology could articulate the mechanism how this happens I've so uh, many of us have seen the image uh, like now this is the most common image of virus where there are spikes on the surface of the virus now those spikes are characteristic because other inside material is very similar so spike have some of the antibody binding portions uh, which actually uh, receptor binding domains the spike proteins have something called rbd receptor binding domains and these, these receptor binding domains uh, go into human beings and then attach to the, some of the receptor, like such as ACE2 receptor. So that's how virus enters into lungs and other parts of the body. Now, to develop vaccines, what researchers are doing across the world for all the vaccines that they are looking at the, those spike proteins and then identifying one of those sections in the spike protein which is, which is called antigenic. What does it mean, antigenic? That it can result in antibody response in human beings, immune response in human beings, without the risk of causing the severe disease. So in the spike protein, the researchers have identified either the, all the spike protein as in the killed vaccine, such as we have Covaxin, which is a killed vaccine, which you use the entire virus. It's kind of a, uh, taking the live virus and inactivating it, so it has the entire virus. But other vaccines, uh, such as uh, um, even Covishield or viral vector vaccine and the vaccines Pfizer and Moderna, which use messenger RNA. Now, th those messenger RNA mechanisms also carry the genomic se genetic sequence of spike proteins. So that's how it is inserted into the body. Now, let me explain this part that we know that uh, once the disease was reported on 11 January 2020, entire genomic sequence of virus was posted in public domain. public domain. So now we know that which part of the genomic sequence reflect or will result in the spike protein formation. So scientists identified that section of uh, genomic sequence of coronavirus and then researchers started identifying that section which will be part of spike protein. 
messenger RNA, RNA means they took that genomic sequence, so, uh, which we know a scientific formula that which, what, which part it is. So, and and they cover it in the nanoparticle with the lipid, lipid, and that becomes a vaccine. So once that is injected in human body, that messenger RNA reaches into a cell. And in the cell, that messenger RNA is used to formulate the protein, which uh, it is designed to or uh, inform. Once that protein, spike protein section is formed in the cell, cell immediately starts. I think that this is something foreign. So they start acting as uh, developing antibody against that protein. So that's how with the mRNA vaccines, the once it's going to cell, the protein is formed, the protein is recognized as foreign, and then our body develops antibody, and then person is immune or protected. This is the mechanism it follows. But this is the mechanism also followed in other vaccines. For example, COVID shield vaccine also. Uh, instead of sending uh, the mRNA or messenger RNA component in the nanoparticles, what uh, COVID shield vaccine does, it has a viral vector which essentially means it is a chimpanzee adenovirus. So chimpanzee adenovirus is taken as a host in which one section of coronavirus is inserted in this genomic sequencing. Now, when that chimpanzee adenovirus is injected into human body, since it is not, it has no ability, it's called non-replicable adenovirus because it cannot replicate human body. So once it's injected in a human body, and the, since it has a, that section of uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus, which can be immunogenic, so our body recognizes that section and antibodies are formed against this. And that's mechanism every vaccine works. Let me put it in this way. Now, when we are talking about inactivated vaccine, which is what uh, co-vaccine is, the technology behind the mRNA is sort of cutting edge, whereas the inactivated vaccines, they are following still the old system. It's like not, they are not cutting edge in any way, co-vaccine. It's using a very old, which we talked about. Am I correct here, sort of? To... Yes, that's very correct. So this killed vaccines are the very traditional form of vaccines in which the entire virus is grown in the biosafety level laboratory three. And once virus is grown, then it is inactivated through a specific mechanism, which are pre-agreed, like formalin and other approaches. So virus is grown in sufficient quantity, then it is inactivated, which means it is when the virus is now killed, but it has all the characteristics and quality of virus. And then that portion is injected in human body. Once injected in human body, again, our body recognizes that this is a foreign substance. So they start a immune response and then antibodies are formed. So this is very old, like a Louis Pasteur in 1885 developed a rabies vaccine by the same mechanism. By same mechanism. Killed vaccine is a, the same form of vaccine which are widely used, like even polio, uh, inactivated polio vaccine was a killed vaccine. Though there is another vaccine, polio vaccine, oral polio vaccine, which is a live attenuated vaccine. Like measles is a live attenuated vaccine. In those live attenuated vaccines, uh, scientific does a serial passage, which essentially means you grow the virus in the laboratory for a certain number of times. And we know that as the virus grows in the laboratory uh, every passing time, it's, a, it's pathogenicity declined. So the measles vaccine, for example, the virus strain, which is right now being used, is around 240 times serial passage, and that resulted in the reduced, reduced pathogenicity, which means ability to cause disease but improved, uh, retain the immunogenicity, ability to cause immune response. No, this is fantastic. Now, when we are talking, but this is another thing, if the inactivated vaccine, it's not very easy also to scale up, right? It, it has its own disadvantages in also uh, one of this. Well, they are very safe and effective, use, uh, but they require usually multiple doses. One dose is not enough in inactivated vaccines. Second part is that uh, since they require the growth of the virus first, which is an essential prerequisite, unlike the mRNA vaccine, which are laboratory created, so their scale-up is really challenging and they are time-consuming process, unlike the other new technology which have been used. But they work, uh, they are very safe and effective, they are proven technology. In this uh, pandemic, we came to know about a lot of things like when you're using the existing drugs. Now, one great, and I love the sort of uh, phrase, which is repurposing of drugs. That's when you already have drugs, uh, which could be uh, significantly used for treating COVID-19. And one of the drugs was remdesivir. Now, it was actually discovered to treat Ebola, which was uh, by far a much has got a mortality rate as high as 50%. That's what I've heard. And, and that, if you correct me, that is like really very high mortality rate. Now, uh, for sex, now 
you also had now the the problem here is like the americans and even the earlier chinese were very positive of remdesivir the americans call it vecluri you know that's that's the name and they had uh, three randomized control trials and we'll come to that at a bit to understand what randomized control trials are also well, and they found it to be safe for adults which are uh, 12 and above and above kg of uh, above weight of uh, 40 kgs in the solidarity test was done to find out how effective remdesivir it was found that it is no longer that effective as a matter of fact and which made who to remove it as one of the recommended drugs i'm correct auditory studies coming in over a period of time is because as the data increased the test was done maybe after or maybe had a elongated time more than the american test and you get kept on getting data from around the world and that changed so this i just wanted to know if you could throw some light on this so we know that uh, sars-cov-2 is a new virus there were no proven medicines or treatment available against uh, sars-cov-2 so some of the uh, experts uh, in the beginning thought that uh, let's try whichever medicine medication works so remdesivir is known to reduce the replication of the virus and with the some of the early findings some of the early studies from france and uh, china also there were indication that it, it can help in reducing the progression of disease to the next level but those were the early stage small scale studies which gave a good indication but we know as an example somebody who see a clinician who is treating 15 patient or 50 patient and if we use remdesivir it's difficult to say whether uh, the benefit was due to remdesivir or those patient would have recovered without uh, remdesivir so that's what happened individual practitioners who were seeing patients and they were using prescribing remdesivir they often reported that this outcome is really good but we know that science or medical science should be evidence based and the one of the best test to uh, test the efficacy or effectiveness of any medication is a randomized control trial and more so large scale randomized control trial like one side you have a 10 or 15 or 50 or 100 patient with somebody seeing other side you want to go for a thousands of patient 10000 20000 30000 and in that kind of setup you can get a better picture whether the drug is really working or it's an artifact so solidarity trial was a multi country trial which had a large number of uh, patients enrolled and when it was examined uh, the findings of solidarity trial it was found that the drug is not effective and that's when the the world health organization and other international agencies said that remdesivir is not effective so individual opinion are always variable and differ from uh, in one individual to another individual the gold standard in such processes randomized control trial now let me quickly uh, one minute reflect on randomized control trial what is done in randomized control tri- trials which should ideally be done double blinded which essentially means the person who is giving the medication is not aware what treatment is being given and individual is not aware because uh, uh, he he or she does not also know what what treatment he or she has received he might have received for example the remdesivir or a placebo yeah now we need to sort of add to the audience just to just sort of we are talking about here we are taking a group double blind experiment is like nobody knows not neither the doctor neither the audience who's or or you can say the the people who are uh, under this uh, control trials there is so there are two types of treatment given one is the original treatment which is effectively the treatment and second is what dr chandrakant talked about is placebo which is a false treatment nobody knows who's actually undergoing the treatment and who's under this just to remove any bias so thanks a lot which you have you know brought in this is about interventions this is to find a counterfactual and factual this is uh, sort of one of the most important techniques now being used in social impact evaluation but dr chandrakant you could you know go ahead so in the, this is the gold standard in doing blinded for both sides so nobody bias because if a, if a provider or the doctor is aware that which medication is given it is very likely that they might be biased to give to uh, somebody who is likely to recover or maybe biased to rec- uh, give somebody who is not give somebody who is unlikely to recover so it's completely kept blind and only at the stage a particular fixed number of cases which need to be enrolled and followed up then only the trial findings are opened up and then experts uh, individual expert or independent expert independently look at it the data and analyze that before arriving on the conclusion so it removes all kind of biases or as many biases as possible are removed and that is really valuable and independent advice otherwise uh, like uh, people will argue that no this work this did not work so and they look very objectively on the predefined parameters the trials have advantage of a predefined protocol which is followed irrespective of the outcome 
and then once the trial is completed then you know that uh, whether it works or not works and people need to take that on as a like a final outcome of course you can do a more large scale study so that's what was found on remdesivir uh, and many other drugs and that's how like a dexamethasone which is such a low cost drug was found effective uh, through a recovery trial uh, which uh, noted that um, the drug had a particular reduction in uh, hospitalization and mortality benefit while the dexamethasone is a age old medication widely known and really low cost and cheap available across the world in india that was the next question and good you talked about but before i go to that just ahead so that then the audience gets clear when the experimentation is being done somebody knows whether it's a placebo or a treatment now this is a third another entity so this another entity involved just doing the experiment which knows who has got what but the doctors who actually are going to be analyzing the data and the subject matter or, or the people who uh, out of uh, you can say trial uh, they are not aware of it am i correct no nobody knows actually so the theoretically what is done the usually the good large scale trials uh, there is a coding given to each of the sample so uh, the the packaging is should always appear very similar mm-hmm. so they are packaged are similar done very similar packaging and there is a code on that um, medication which should be given now what usually as an investigator are supposed to do they need they need to run a through an identified method a pick a number from the list and then whatever its number is picked that relevant linked medicine linked package need to be taken and open and so they don't really know even the packagers do not know but of course there is somewhere in the system in that packaging uh the record is maintained that the number xyz which were given is what and that process is called unblinding when that kind of thing somebody they become sick and a particular outcome is seen or die uh, in that particular scenario so for that person the medication number which was given or code which was given to that drug which the person received is unblinded and that is computer generated system the record is kept there and unless that is open that what was that drug or medication given to that individual nobody really knows everything is computerized and uh, this way so it's really fascinating and interesting this fascinating somebody makes it you have a system and another entity or an actor is giving it's, it's like an organization is coming it's uh, carrying on you know you have then another set of actors or doctors or researchers would be coming in and then the people now this entity also does not know but they have a coded system wherein they have no okay this uh, particular treatment or this particular let's say if if it's an injection which you are going to be giving in this particular dose is actually the uh, the true and false one or zero binary it's how it's mapped and then at the end of the trial they come out maybe there's an excel sheet or a sort of a data where they match who got what yeah so that's how it is like for example uh, in the vaccine trials one individual get a vaccine um, uh, for, uh, for example in the drugs it's far easier you can give a placebo like for example uh, a medication is given similar packaging can be done of paracetamol which is like for fever but it you can administer or a chalk even chalk powder can be used placebo but in vaccine trials usually you need to give a injection and now you don't want to give a injection of a saline or whatever so many of the participant in the drug trial vaccine trials usually receive meningococcal vaccine which is a proven safe effective vaccine so the person who is receiving a actual vaccine under trial and then other person who is in the control arm is likely to receive any some other vaccine which is not the same vaccine but a very different vaccine um, yeah, i know you know some of the trials meningococcal vaccine was given to the control arm so the people who did not receive a uh covid-19 uh vaccine candidate vaccine received a meningococcal vaccine again which prevent against meningococcal meningitis so i have a very good question that's very thought provoking question you know but this is very interesting let's say i i am within a trial and i get uh, uh the dose i actually i get a vaccine but it, it's a placebo don't you think a lot of times uh, the power of the mind comes in that even both the treatment and the placebo they know that okay they think actually that they have got the vaccine all of them and that might just the power of the mind might just uh, distort a bit of trust maybe without those trial they might have done much more poorly against a disease or something oh but definitely that's how it is like it's a widely proven placebo effect that uh, the, what they did the many of the researchers did and on many uh, different aspects so for example somebody who has fever uh, they were given paracetamol for fever and then other people who did not have uh, who had fever similar group but they were given chocolate powder uh, the chalk powder 
Now, studies have found that simply giving uh, like completely ineffective medication, 30% of people will still recover from that because that's how your belief and your immune system starts. So that is called placebo effect. If people are simply told that they have been given medication, obviously, unless the situation is really complicated, in common conditions, they recover, they, their healing power starts. So that's what happens. So even in the vaccine, that's why you require, uh, because that effect, when we do randomized control trial, the both sides should, we would assume that in the both sides, people will think uh, that somebody who received vaccine would think that they might not have received vaccine and there would be people on the uh, control arm, they would think they received vaccine and both sides, it will nullify on, on both sides. Yeah, true. You have articulated the concept very talked about, of course, recovery. Recovery is a randomized solution of COVID-19 therapy. Talk about uh, methasnone, but there is another thing, which is methylpredisnone, which is also was one of the drugs or steroids, which is very helpful. Now, when you're talking about these two, especially uh, methylpredisnone, when you're talking about, do talk about when you're talking about steroids, because steroids could also have a harmful effect. They have to be given at the right point in time. Uh, that is what. So if you could elaborate about these two, how effective they are, their efficacy in uh, curing exactly COVID-19, but it's delaying it. Or so now we have developed a little better understanding of how SARS-CoV-2 progress in human body. And we say that the uh, first seven days are viral phase, which essentially means that the virus multiply in human body in the first seven days. And then sec next seven days are usually immune phase in which our immune system, system start reacting, responding to it. Now, we know that in second phase, especially moderate illness and severe illness, when our immune system is trying to cope up with the virus, uh, sometimes it overreacts. And then when it overreacts, it's called cytokine storm. A number of people who develop severe disease die due to cytokine storm. Now, cytokine storm in the simple terms, you like uh, if we know uh, that there are police uh, standing at the security at the security at the public places uh, due to any threat and apprehension. Now their role is just to if there is some uh, element like, for example, a terrorist appear, then they should try to eliminate terrorists. Yeah, right. But uh, sometimes what happens if there are more, many more terrorists and then police start indiscriminate firing firing on the street, mm. then of course some of the people anti-social element terrorists might die, but also some citizen will die. And that's what exactly the cytokine storm is. Our immune system's role is to identify the foreign objects and try to neutralize and kill them. But when our immune system starts thinking that uh, it's beyond my power, I am not able to control this virus replication. So it becomes, uh, brings all the firepower and start indiscriminately releasing everything. In that process, what happens? Of course, virus die, but also start damaging our own body organs. And that is called cytokine storm. The word itself is cytokine storm okay that excessive release of uh, uh, protective immune uh, things which will damage harm the virus and damage this thing so second phase is really crucial and we want to the number of mortality a part of mortality due to cytokine storm so that as it is that stage when corticosteroids are recommended for treatment only when in those individuals who are hospitalized who require medical oxygen because then the role of steroid is to reduce to to moderate the immune response like they weakens the immune system so our system does not become overactive overreactive and responding to the virus so that's the role of this thing steroids are not required and not recommended in the early phase of when virus is multiplying because if virus multiplication stage steroids start uh, uh, we give steroid, then the, our immune system will weaken and virus will multiply faster and then the disease could become severe. So only at the Im immune stage where our immune system is overreacting, that time should be given. So scientists have found a very uh, methodological approach uh, when, the, when is the right time to give uh, um, steroids and that's the right way of doing it. So dexamethasone is one, but methylpredinosolone is other one. Uh, they are recommend recommended uh, like any of the, based upon the clinician's preference, but uh, usually they fall in the same category. They work in a similar fashion. Put it in a layman's term. If I give these uh, steroids at early stage, they might just be attacking cells, or might be protecting you. So that's because it comes as a specialist drug, and you know, like like a commando force. And when the commando force is in, in much before, uh, when, when you really don't need that particular force. So you're, what you're saying is that they might just destroy those immune system, which might just help as a matter of fact, fight against the infection. 
So we need to understand that uh, to any illness and pathogen, our immune system takes uh, seven days to prepare for the first time. That's why the vaccines are required because then with the vaccines, we prime our immune system. So the amount of time which is required to identify pathogen and uh, then prepare immune system is bypassed because uh, we, uh, through vaccines, our immune system already knows that uh, which is the pathogen. And so next time when pathogen will enter, the immune system will come in the action immediately. Seven days to 14 days is the time period which immune system requires uh, to identify pathogen and start responding to it. So if our steroids are given little early, our immune system will not be able to function and identify that, complete that process. And then it will become very difficult for the person to recover and to fight the disease. Our systems or our body is like intelligent enough to understand what the, you know, to identify a new, let's say, foreign body coming in and to develop pathways to fight it. And that recovery and that sort of memory stays forever. Am I correct here? And that yes, is that's very true. There are some things. So we know that there are, there are two types of responses, broadly speaking. The uh, antibody-based response where antibodies are developed in the human body, but the other is a cell-based immunity. And now in this cell-based immunity, there are two broad type of cells, T cells, which are helper T cells. And some of these cells role directly engulfing or attacking the virus and then reducing the impact. But there are other type of cells called memory T cells, which memory T cells actually remember that which pathogen had attacked. And their numbers are far and few, and they go to bone marrow and stay there forever. But next time when pathogen attacks, they quickly immediately recognize like a photograph that this person, this pathogen has come and they activate immune system, which becomes active in a few hours and then start responding to the pathogen. And that's how it protects for the long run. Now, if we take steroids, if it's given at a later stage, you think it's very effective? That's what you would, you would recommend that? Yeah, okay. right stage. Very effective, like obviously steroid has an important role in it. Uh, it prevents a, a fraction of mortality, not in everyone who receives steroid will benefit. But uh, uh, in comparison of not those, uh, like if we look at two groups, uh, one which were given a steroid and other not given steroid, there is around 30% less of mortality and progression to the next stage of disease in the group which receives steroids. And it also reduces the duration of stay in the hospital. That's true. What I'm saying is that because I also suffered, I'm a COVID-19 survivor. My whole family had COVID-19. Taking steroids, just to sort of just add in the last bit on steroids, how long should that duration be? A couple of days, you think, is more than enough? No, it, it will be determined by the treating physician. It de determines that how the person's condition is recovering, improving, changing. That will determine the duration of treatment. You've talked about mucomycosis and you've written also an article on that. And a lot of uh, media is confusing mucomycosis with black fungi. Now, mucomycosis is caused by a uh, fungi, which is known as mucoromycetes. Now, they both have the same subphylum of, of fungi, both of them, a black fungus and mucomycosis. Sort of actually give, a, what's the difference between actually two? A lot of people confuse and say black fungus is mucomycosis, but then they are not the same, right? So what we need to remember that fungi is another big uh, kingdom, like the way everything is classified, the animal kingdom, plant kingdom, that way fungi itself is a kingdom. There is a bigger group. Now, Fungi comes, you know, various colors, all possible colors you can imagine and they are there like, uh, so that's a, a kind of thing. Mucormycetes uh, is a fungus which causes uh, mucormycosis and this, uh, uh, the why this got black fungus name is uh, two factors. One, uh, this, uh, when this infection, mucormycetes or zygomycetes, we also call it the name of fungi. When that infection happens, a person can develop a blackish discoloration over the base of nose and flow to the eyes. Also in the palate, uh, there can be black uh, uh, spots. In the nose where fungus grow, uh, it can also cause blackish appearance. So that's how the name colloquially got black fungus. But also there is another factor that when these fungus mycomycetes is grown on the culture media in the laboratory, between the growth of fun fungi, there are some black dots appear as part of the growth process. And that's how this has got a name black fungus colloquially. It is not black fungus. Black fungus is very different one, as you say, also say. And it rarely causes that kind of illness. It does not definitely affect the sinuses, all of those. So uh, it's unfortunate that it was named uh, as a black fungus. But we need to remember that who are the individual who get de developed this uh, mycomycety. And the individual who received steroids, indiscriminate use of steroids, who had a pre-existing uh, diabetes diet, uncontrolled one, 
somebody who has a pre-existing immunocompromised status or someone who is a long-term hospital admission. These are the individuals who develop leukomyositis. And, uh, but fortunately now, since cases are coming down, the case, number of uh, leukomyositis cases have also gone down. As per one report in India, around 40,000 leukomyositis cases have been reported. Often, like uh, the mortality is around 10% till now, but there are still some patients, cases who are hospitalized. That's what I wanted to There's a sudden explosion, you know, mucomycosis cases. Now, of course, there are a couple of reasons and there was some research done. It, one is, of course, it could be because of lack of immunities during the steroids if not given at the right time. That was one of the reasons. But one which I came across was very interesting. It said that because of oxygen refilling, you know, India went through a huge oxygen crisis. Now, just to sort of from Lancet, just to give a perspective, early April, I figured that about 3842 metric tons of oxygen was you know, consumed in India. By 21st of April, it, it was more than 8,000 metric tons per day. That could be refilling of cylinders, be one of the reasons for the explosion in uh, cases. Well, so all the hypotheses are being explored. Uh, there are a number of hypotheses which are being discussed and deliberated uh, that why this happened. And of course, uh, uncontrolled diabetes mellitus is also there. But uh, we have also heard that in the use of industrial oxygen for uh, oxygenation of uh, oxygen therapy during the COVID-19 crisis is also being explored. Also, it's also being explored that uh, the use of the cylinders uh, for oxygen, which were not used and not properly cleaned, However, uh, this these hypothesis requires some more detailed investigation. We really don't know what could be the cause. More likely due to the excessive use of steroid, individual immune status, and also uncontrolled diabetes mellitus. But we need to remember that uh, the situation, like the number of cases is really far, far and few. If it was due to industrial oxygen or uh, uh, unclean cylinders, it would have been really bigger impact. Okay. I think, but uh, it's good that we have uh, some sort of investigation into that. But come to convalescent plasma therapy. I myself, so that's the reason why I'm saying, I know plasma is just sort of those, it's it's been used before. It's not like it's been used for the first time and it helps people specifically with low immune system. Now, if you look at even in America, the US has given emergency authorization use for a plasma therapy. This, from what I believe is it's still going on. It's, it's it, They have not removed it. Do you think the government of India sort of went ahead in dismissing this plasma therapy, especially when you're facing the worst healthcare crisis of all time? Just to sort of, it just blew me apart that why government of India, fair enough, we don't have, I do understand maybe there's not enough of evidence, but there's no negative evidence of, you know, plasma being uh, harming people, uh, but it specifically does help to a certain extent people with no immune system. I just wanted to have a view. On the plasma, convalescent plasma therapy, number of uh studies have been conducted and it has been found especially after the solidarity trial and then there was a large-scale study from india which itself found that the role of plasma therapy is really limited now individual as we discussed for remdesivir individual practitioners often were arguing that this is beneficial and this helps patient but uh, large-scale studies randomized control trials are the really gold standard what they found that they are not beneficial globally it was not recommended but every country has freedom to decide their clinical protocol. So Indian government continued to use plasma therapy on the argument that uh, it might be useful in a very specific subset of patients and the donor, if the donor has a particular high level of antibody, it might benefit. So in fact, I would say that India continued to use convalescent plasma therapy for longer than globally uh, it was stopped. And now it was only in uh, late April and early May, Indian government stopped convalescent plasma therapy. There is a fairly conclusive evidence that this is not effective. It does not work. And there are too many uh, challenges uh, in identifying donors. And it puts unnecessary stress and pressure on the relatives because there is a moral, moral dilemma. If you say that this, okay, it might benefit. Uh, it's, there is an opportunity cost in healthcare. The person need to, person get stressed and person try to find out the right kind of donor. Well, the benefit is really not there. Now it's clear that uh, it does not benefit. So, of course, it does not do any harm, but uh, there are stress involvement. Uh, there is a burden on healthcare system. If you try to get uh, put uh, plasma banks and all those things, it, it has an opportunity cost there. Uh, so medical science should be evidence-based and the most recent evidence should be used. Of course, it was the right approach to be done last year, July, August, September, when we had limited evidence. 
But when there is evidence, clearly that it does not benefit, it's better to stop it. It has not stopped its emergency authorization. I'm still there, right? I think uh, in this case, it must be called uh, investigational therapy. Of course, investigational therapy can be done. And that's what India continued starting October till April. They were saying that a special subgroup of patients, the investigational therapy can be given. But now Indian experts are convinced that this is not beneficial. Of course, if there is more evidence emerging from other part of the world and the United States is doing, if they are doing it. And these are dynamic processes. As far as the current situation is concerned, Indian experts believe that this is not beneficial. And that's what is being followed. Now let's come to, you know, the Delta variant that's created like a havoc. There are a lot of uh, every, every news channel. In one of the recent studies I was reading, it's, it's going to become, I think, a 20% of the variant now in the US could be uh, the Delta variant. Now the here, the question here, just I'm trying to understand is like Delta is when we are talking about is B.1.617.2. Uh, it's a variant of SCOV-2 from the lineage of B.1.617. And it was first uh, detected in India late 2020 now according to this one of the most dominant variants now here now i really want to know how could i mean we have a lot of experts around the world is to understand how could the government of india along with the other actors within the healthcare system it's a very fair question uh be so complacent which is what i mean lancet everybody have you know given their own critique declaring a premature victory over covid 19 you know which is what was declared and then we came to know what damage that delta variant has done and the, what's one of the worst things is uh, that the Delta variant has been there for a while. It was not that the Delta variant just came in and first recognized in 2021. Yes, uh, so the variants have emerged starting uh, Alpha variant, which was first identified in September 2020 in Kent, England. And the Delta variant was first reported from India in uh, Maharashtra in October 2020. We know that the viruses have a regular mutation as they multiply and more the higher the transmission in the viruses the higher the chances of mutation but every mutation is not uh, relevant like there are mutations which are irrelevant or insignificant but there are mutations which can change in the behavior of the virus so that's what uh, when such mutations are found they are called variants of interest and then scientists start looking at uh, whether it is causing higher transmissibility or is it resulting in a breakthrough infection or immune escape or there is a change in the clinical outcome. Depending upon those factors, if any of those is there, then in this, those variants are classified variants of concern. Till now, there are four variants of concerns across the world and seven variants of interest. Delta variant is uh, one of those such variants of concern, which is like now 90% in India, it's, uh, across the world, in all parts of nearly all parts of the world. Uh, even in United States, it becoming increasing rapidly. So this is uh, 50 to 70 percent higher transmissible. It calls some immunoscape. Immunoscape means that somebody who is uh, antibody due to natural infection can still get infected. It causes breakthrough infection, which means that somebody who has uh, received vaccination they can also get infection. So this has some of the qualities and more transmissible. It's a challenge. But what we need to remember that this is the fight against virus. As long as virus is circulating there is a risk of a newer variant. So better we do everything to stop the transmission or circulation of virus. Got increased transmissibility, but we still don't know how deadly it is. That What we know is that the Delta variant is more transmissible, but really how much does it affect in mortality rate? That's still not clear. So the, the severity of disease, it, uh, we really don't know. The Indian evidence suggests that there is no change in the pathogenicity or severity of disease, the kind of severe disease it caused. But there were some early reports from United Kingdom, which report, which found that uh, it was slightly higher severe disease. But we still have to wait because uh, what we are seeing that uh, the number of cases in United Kingdom has increased, but the number of hospitalization has not increased. So it's very likely that it may not be uh, any different in terms of severity than the previous variant. So then here, we also have that US has one of the best vaccination system, even UK. So if the evidence was coming, okay, that should be looked at because if you look at the vaccination programs, these two countries have been fantastic, US and UK. You know, a variant of concern, there's another level which the virus could go to. So till now, we haven't uh, got any variants which have reached to that level. Am I correct? There's another level above a uh, level of concern, right? So, yeah, uh, so the, all of the variants are variants of concern and they uh, like four variants, alpha, beta, gamma and delta. The delta variant is the most transmissible. But we also know that alpha variant, when it was originally reported, uh, 
it was uh, 50 percent more transmissible in comparison of the original virus which was first reported from wuhan china and now this data variant is 50 to 70 percent more transmissible in comparison of alpha variant which is already highly transmissible. essentially delta variant is in comparison of original virus is nearly twice more transmissible than original virus so the, this is always comparative and if a variant is a variant or additional mutations does not alter in the behavior we will not notice so uh, these, these are the four currently but there is no doubt that if virus keeps circulating virus circulate there could be more variants yeah, more which could be variants of interest and concern but it's difficult to predict all we can do we can follow once identified through the genomic sequencing such variants can be identified this is really interesting is like because you have a colossal for the worst tra tra uh, tragedy which we have seen the amount of people who have died uh, it's very hard to phantom. Now, when you speak, of course, vaccination is the, you are absolutely right. Absolutely right. That vaccination of the whole, uh, everybody on this planet is like important because it's going to spread in. And we have seen how something happens in one part of the world. It sort of goes and spreads to the other part of the world. That's true. But uh, come to two very important questions, which is based on some of the things which I've researched and already published. Now, in one of my publications, I think a fantastic a lot of people loved it. And I would love to know also your views. COVID-19, what did we learn? You know, that's something of, more of evidence-based, which I've used secondary research. But also vaccination and a very strong healthcare system. Now, of course, of, of, of the late, a little bit vaccination in India has come up. But we see we are actually not strong in both of these legs. You know, two pillars at least to fight this particular virus. Just to give you a fair perspective, India has only 086 physicians per thousand in 2018. Now, if you compare it with China, which is 1.98, uh, it was 4.25 in Germany and 2.61 in the US. And these figures are from 2017. So I presume they could have gone better, not necessarily, but it would be like, of course, one of the vaccination program. And secondly, what's because you're very passionate about universal healthcare, topic which I think is now so crucial around the world, which is basically not one only Indian. I think it sort of is one of the most defining topics in US politics. It's one of the most defining topics for everybody, every human. I think every human in the world has got a right to universal healthcare. So when you're talking about now, looking at the perspective of the facts which I've shared, to talk about the vaccination program and structures to structurally change the healthcare system in India as an expert. Please share, go all out and explain who, what you would really like to see. Not now, not only now, maybe 10 years down the line, over a period of time in a decade. We need to remember that, uh, of course, the uh, world will win against the virus. The pandemic will be over. Though the virus may stay and then we need to follow a particular approach to fight the virus, but the world will win against this virus. But I always argue that this victory will be incomplete unless we derive lessons and learnings from this fight against virus. And we have learned many things that a stronger, well-functioning health system is relatively better prepared to respond to, the, to such kind of challenges. We have learned that we require human resources which are well-placed and well-organized. We have learned that we need a testing services. We need early, easy access to the people to healthcare services. So there are many learning. Uh, my suggestion would be that uh, once uh, the immediate crisis at hand is over, the governments, both national government and state governments should sit together or put they bring their expert together and identify that how this the learnings experience can be utilized to strengthen India's healthcare system. They need to prepare a roadmap for a five years or seven years or ten years that this is how we will use learning, and that's where we want to see the uh, country go. And India has already committed to universal health coverage through national health policy. Uh, now these learnings should be utilized to accelerate the progress in that direction, and that's how India will progress to USC. Uh, but learning is so very essential. If we do not learn, we are likely to make similar kind of mistakes. And, and are you positive? Something would happen. I, I would love like, for example, look at expenditure as a percentage of GDP in healthcare. It's very high. I mean, it's about 3%, whatever I uh, read for. And uh, it might be even less if it goes to the system. I don't know how much does it reach. But what we are looking at, you know, opening up more hospitals, making up you know, much more intense, like the initiatives which America is taking. And we'll come to now know about their, uh, one of the fantastic uh, programs, which is like antiviral program pandemics. Even China, I mean, has invested so much. Uh, European countries have invested so much in healthcare, you know, to get that competency going in. And that's what is required, futuristic. Do you think, do you see, and as an expert, as somebody whose views are so valuable, 
to the government, both the state and the central government. Are we, you think there's a sort of change of mindset we are looking at? So if you can recall, uh, uh, during early part of pandemic uh, in last year, April 2020, there was a lot of dialogue which was happening and where the argument was that India need to strengthen health system. But we know 15 months since then, there was not enough uh, attention on strengthening health system. So India has that way, uh, is not known for following upon on the promises. The political leaders make promises, but they do not always follow it up. I think this is the time that uh, we change that situation. It will not happen automatically. The government, political leadership, subject experts have to keep reminding and keep uh, bring attention of government that to happen. That is the only way and that is the way it should happen. Rightly, I think it's the communities which is good. Civic societies have to take this forward that, okay, we had enough. Recently, President Biden and his team, you know, they're going to be investing about $3.2 billion from the American Rescue Plan. Now, what's very important is that they're going to be in this is the first time a clear cut strategy has come out that we're not only going to be building, uh, you know, defenses against COVID-19, but we are for now realizing that what the risk of the pandemics could be from viruses. It's not, it, it was already, there are a lot of reports and which have come out that during the Obama administration also they had, you know, a lot of focus on the future of the pandemic, but then, you know, uh, things do change. But when you're terming up uh, the antiviral program for uh, pandemics known as as AAP, to prolong strategy in fighting the, the pandemic and develop antiviral pills, which is even much more difficult so that it could help people who have low immune system or who cannot go to the vaccination centers. So this is a very futuristic strategy. How would you comment? How, what do you think uh, could be the fallout globally? So we know that uh, it's really challenging to develop an effective treatment against uh, viruses or antivirals. Drugs are really challenging. The first antibacterial or antibiotics were developed in 1930-1914. Similarly, we know that against HIV AIDS, uh, there was a lot of research and attention, but it took nearly 20 years of global solidarity, a lot of investment before uh, effective medication against antiretroviral uh, therapy or human immune deficiency virus could be developed. So it takes a lot of time. Then uh, we know now that this virus keeps changing and with the change and mutations, uh, even the effectiveness of therapies, uh, therapies including drugs, it becomes very challenging. So it's definitely very difficult to predict that when a medication would be available, but it requires a global solidarity. The kind of investment which were done for the vaccines uh, to, all, to be also done for the therapeutics for um, coronavirus and SARS-CoV-2. And that's how it could happen. And of course, the countries such as United States and G7 and other need to take lead because they have a kind of resources, the kind of resources which are required to develop medications. But I would also say that the global community should also work together to ensure that one, as and when those medicines are available, antivirals are available against SARS-CoV-2, they should be easily accessible to most of the world. They should not be restricted to the limited parts of the rich world. There are certain things which you talked about and which is mentioned in the book. For example, you mentioned the first antiviral drug came out in 1970s or somewhere around that. So that's very interesting. These small, small facts. So that's why it makes We Will, uh, we will Win as uh, one of the very important books to read because you come to know a lot about what's happening in the uh, medical landscape. You're not going to whether it should be enough freely available because then there are also trademark issues and people have also invested there a lot. So that's a separate domain altogether. But this could be a platform which I feel uh, for people to also come out and make individually their strategies. What I was thinking is like, okay, uh, America has taken a lead of China and European countries anyway are following a lot of best practices they're putting in. You know, you have Canada. As a matter of fact, I read a very important study of Uruguay. Uruguay in Latin America, a lot of fantastic things to find the, um, they use a lot, lot of technology. And it's a very lovely, if people could read a bit about that country. Uh, what here I'm thinking is like, do you think it's time we start thinking about that the risk from viruses are predominantly the most the most critical risk now going forward? We are learning about the COVID-19 disease and uh, SARS-CoV-2 every passing day. We also learning that uh, the world is facing uh, emerging threats of uh, emerging and re-emerging diseases because of uh, deforestation, which discussed, because of climate change, which results in additional pathogens surviving in additional settings because of overcrowding, unplanned cities, uh, high-speed uh, transport, which essentially means an individual can move, go from one part of the world to another part within. Antimicrobial resistance, which is developing, there are battery farming where large-scale animal uh, farming is being done. So all of these factors are conducive for transmission of virus and even 
the existing pathogen causing severe disease or <clears throat> affecting additional population. So these are the challenges and what is the best way to prevent from them that to be recognize that what are the challenges which world is facing and take appropriate actions. And those actions, actions will not be on the health sector only. Those actions will not be that identifying treatments or developing vaccines. There had to be a lot of preventive and promotive interventions. So the virus age does not emerge. They do not enter a new population. You know, point which I read in your book is, I think it took four years before to make the fastest vaccination was for Ebola, which took about four years. Am I correct? Yes, that's, that's right in 1960. Right. And this is the fastest we've ever built within a year. This is absolutely unprecedented that we have now got a vaccine, which is very effective, very efficacy within a year. So that's at least in a way, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you can say the positive thing is like in the last one year, I would say that the medical or healthcare history has taken a, a quantum leap in terms of sort of the money which came in instead of the concern because of the COVID-19, we are seeing the ripple effect in maybe green finance and a lot of other sustainable development goals that people have realized, okay, as a humanity, what happened because of COVID-19, let's try to look at, okay, equitable education, can we give it to people? You know, a lot of things. That I think mindset is changing. Do you, do you, would you agree with me on this? Yes, precisely. So we need to like uh, really prepare, we need to think that what, how we can improve the life of cities and all around us. And especially for the emergence of viruses, I would repeat that the focus had to be multi-sectoral, where we think in the climate change, the preventing deforestation, we think of safer living conditions for urban poor and slums and all of those. So we need to act on multiple levels to prevent the epidemics and pandemics and also to stand on healthcare system to be prepared for any eventuality. Because no matter what we do, there is always possibility of epidemics and pandemics. And now, you know, please do share any advice you want for COVID-19 or could have, you know, complications. You could talk about any nutrition or anything which you would like to, as a message, share with people uh, who have already suffered from COVID-19. So I would say two or three things. One is that we need to remember that though number of cases have come down to around 40 to 50,000 a day from 400,000 a day, which is really declined. But this is still... a then uh, like around four to five fold higher than the lowest of around 8,000 cases a day we saw in February. And what it conveys that the virus is still around. So my advice and suggestion and request to the citizen people would be that keep following COVID appropriate behavior of face masks. Avoid going, going to the social gatherings, so weddings or any other program where you can avoid to go. Uh, keep hand washing because these are the behavior which will prevent us from COVID-19, no matter which strain is circulating, no matter what is the level of transmission. We also need to remember that we need to do this ourselves, not because the government, uh, if you go to public place and if you're not wearing masks, you might be fine. That should not be the approach or it should not be approach that government is telling us so we should do. We should do because that is the right thing to be done. Uh, we can see that uh, Israel, even after vaccination, removed the mask uh, mandate and now they are going back to mask uh, at the public places. Mask and physical distancing and hand washing. These COVID appropriate behavior are the short, short way of preventing ourselves from a pandemic of COVID-19 till the world is in the pandemic. And of course, then go get vaccinated as and when uh, your turn come and if you can get vaccinated. And final part is that uh, uh, all those who recover from COVID-19, it's important that you might have some of the post-COVID symptoms, long COVID symptoms. So keep watching your health. Do not go for excessive uh, physical exertion. Uh, eat healthy, sleep well, take proper rest, and more slowly increase in physical activity. As and when you develop any symptom, get uh, consult your healthcare provider. Uh, of course, you have recovered, you will be fine, and uh, one day all of us will win against this better. In this better. Of course, the last question from the middle is the aha question. You know, if you could, if you would like to uh, share any message with the audience or any aha moment which comes to your mind. I think uh, the pandemic period, especially second wave, has been very challenging for the citizen. But people have started getting uh, vaccinated, and this is good thing. One of the personally satisfying uh, moment for me has been that uh, in the pandemic, I could help uh, many people on the various aspects of uh, disease condition when I need you to receive calls about health condition and I could advise them over phone, allay their fear. But one of the moments was that somebody, uh, like uh, some parent, one parent, uh, their daughter got vaccinated and then she developed uh, some rashes and some continuous fever after vaccination. And uh, 
they the parents uh, did not know me they were in different city they searched on internet by phone number and then they contacted me and uh, like when i heard their condition i realized that this is a only minor condition parents were excessively worried so i kind of placated them and uh, advised them some of the aspects on vaccine adverse events and how it works and how individually like to recover on my advice they are con- uh, they were little calm and composed and uh, 3 days later i heard from them that while their anxiety had gone but their daughter who received vaccine and she was having this fever and all the symptoms also disappeared but so uh, what i realized that sometimes being away from the complete stranger giving them advice and allaying them fear can really work well and very most satisfying is some stranger picking the phone getting my number and then calling me and from my advice getting benefited that is the real more satisfaction than anything else which we do in our life and we try to uh, take fear and uh, fight this virus thanks a lot i really appreciate i think the last you no know, year we should be very very grateful to doctors caregivers policy experts healthcare system experts i mean you've done a fantastic job i really recommend everybody that they read uh, till we win uh it's a fantastic book it's dr chandrakant lehria i really appreciate you coming first of all to the middle road platform speaking up and being very detailed and very helpful thank you very much mr malhotra and uh, i hope uh, the viewer and the audience will enjoy the conversation i'm sure they will i think this this is a very different and it's a very invigorating and very detailed conversation uh, thank you and you articulated the concepts very well i think you come across as somebody not only who is a very good author i mean of course uh, there are other people but uh, you come and you are able to articulate those facts to somebody who is a layman to somebody who is not much aware of the medical terms and i think that's a fantastic and that's a very credible uh, tribute thank you thank you very much